Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host, Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by Mark Ryle. Mark is one of those people who exude creativity. He seems endlessly fascinated by the world and is constantly looking to improve, grow, and find where he fits in the world. And remember, after today's show, to make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Mark Ryle, welcome to My Wax Museum. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm excited to have you here. I hosted you previously on Broken Bulbs, which I guess kind of gives it away how we know each other. But I like to ask the guests to introduce how how do we know each other, Mark? Well, we, we yeah we did the show the Broken Bulbs, and uh, I I uh, related a few uh, I guess three broken bulbs that uh, that uh, I experienced in my life, and uh, I really like the theme of your show and. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's a it's a good feeling to be able to go through something like that and and, uh, and uh, discuss uh, you know not always just the positives but some of the negatives or struggles that that, that all, you know ultimately lead to uh, better times. So um, I appreciated that imp- uh, opportunity, and that's why that's how we met. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'll put links to the episodes you were in in the show notes so that people can go and check those out if they care to. Um, and and I, after talking to you on there, I was like, this guy has a lot of interesting experiences and interesting stories to tell. And so I invited you on to My Wax Museum to chat some more. And so getting into that, getting into your life experiences, why don't you tell us where you're from originally? Sure. I was born in uh, Windsor, Ontario, right across from uh, Motor City there, the Detroit River, separated uh, Windsor from Detroit. And uh, I lived there. Um, I have two sisters and then my parents, and we lived there until uh, I was about eight years old. And then we, because my dad was uh, moving up in the management at Canadian Oxygen, um, we've started moving around other parts of Canada. So I actually lived in Edmonton, oh. your your rival yeah. <laughs> city, Edmonton. Uh, I remember the great rivalry between Calgary and Edmonton. And, uh, and, uh, so, uh, but also lived in Vancouver. I've lived in London, Ontario. Um, and Belleville, Ontario. And when I was in high school, I lived in Toronto, in the Toronto area. Okay. Wow. You've been, you've been all over then. So it was there, was there a particular place, at least growing up, was there a particular place that you kind of wished your family would have stayed? London was incredible because uh, I lived there when I was, uh, let's say eight or nine years old till I was 13 or 14. We had one of these blocks which is filled with kids they all seem to be your age you know so uh we played ball hockey on the streets for hours we we went to the uh local marsh and and dug up bullfrogs and uh, we uh we played with pellet guns you're not really supposed to do that but you know we um did mud fights and riding around on our bikes and nikki nine door and we, it was it was a mischievous but fun bunch of uh mainly boys that i was playing with but uh it was a great neighborhood, and uh, I was very sad uh, when I my parents transferred to Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton was great, and, and I, I could tell you great stories there, too. I met a couple really strong friends in Edmonton, too, later. But the uh, experience in London was, it was the type of block that every kid needs and deserves, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I always think, you know, it sounds, uh, it sounds like kind of an 80s movie kids grown up, you know, like hanging out, having a good time, right? Anything goes. 
And, and so I, I love the sound of it. And then I'm curious to hear about your experience in Edmonton, because most of the people that I've had from Alberta on the show have been from Calgary. Obviously, that's where I'm from. And so there hasn't been a lot of positive Edmonton talk. So maybe you can bring that for us. <laughs> oh, Edmonton was fantastic, actually. Uh, I believe Gretzky was playing for the Oilers at the time. So that's one great thing right there. Uh, and um, we did a lot of snowmobiling. We did some golfing uh, at the Derek, the Derek Golfing Country Club. And uh, I, I delivered newspapers. I loved my school there. Um, and there was two friends I had across the street who were absolutely amazing. They still uh, have visited me and went, went back to Toronto. So Edmonton was uh, – the only thing I didn't like about Edmonton was – the uh, the mosquitoes are they still there? I don't know. <laughs> Everybody had a little mob of mosquitoes above their head as they were out on the golf course. You know, like your mob's bigger than my mob, and you, even with all the repellent, you know, thousands of mosquitoes. But uh, the cold weather was challenging sometimes too. I must admit. But I remember going to school at minus forty five degrees. Well, but they, I think they can't send us home early because even that was too cold for that city. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Even too cold for Edmonton. I, I like it. And then you mentioned Vancouver then. What was what were some highlights in Vancouver? Vancouver was, um, I went out there to do my master's in uh, science, um, <clears throat> which academically was one of my greatest failures <clears throat> because um, I know I mentioned on your other show that uh, I dropped out of that program. Uh, so I was studying science. I had a good scholarship. But um, uh, and enjoying the city, the city itself is spectacular. But um, my purpose for going out there was to get a master's in science, and I did not finish that degree. Uh, I can elaborate on that more if you want. But uh, but then I, I did stay out there even after I dropped out, and, and uh, again met some wonderful people. Um, there's one poet I met out there. I won't mention him, but he's a professor now. At, uh, University of Victoria. He's uh, some sort of sort of a statistical genius, and I sort of knew when I was when he's my roommate. I said, "This guy seems really smart," and uh, and uh, he, yeah, he's now into all of that decoding encryption stuff and working with the Americans and doing top secret stuff. So, like, it'd be fascinating to hook up with them again. Um, but anyway, so I met him, and I met, um, yeah, I, I met several other people in in the community and just uh i enjoyed the skiing there's one day i went skiing golfing and swimming in the ocean all in one day and I, you can't do that everywhere in canada you know so yeah that was I, i'll never forget vancouver i only lived there for one year but fascinating place it, it is a beautiful beautiful city i, I love vancouver uh so that's really interesting and in our quick questions kind of speaking to this university experience you had you mentioned you spent 12 years in post-secondary is that right yes in total so I, I ended up getting four degrees my first one was in science that took me five years because i did a co-op program and i also uh, switched around a bit and then i did a bachelor in ed education and i also did a master's in business uh, at the schulich school in new york university and then i so that was a bit of a shift a lot of people are, what are you doing with the master's in business? I, said, I don't know. I don't know anything about business. Maybe I should just do it. And it was good. I learned something. I never went into business really. But, uh, and then I did a doctorate in education at U the U of T. Uh, and that took about three and a half years. Interesting. What a wild ride. So, okay. 
you you do all this, you get an MBA for no reason in particular, other than you're interested, and then uh, and then you get uh, a doctorate in education. Tell tell me about your your thought process for going through all this school. What was there something you were working towards? Like what what did you want? Uh, well, <clears throat> the. Uh... The, I think the MBA was just to learn about something I didn't know anything about, so I forced myself into there. And I learned a lot about accounting and marketing and whatnot. Uh, but I remember my sister saying to me, Mark, you're not really a corporate guy. Why are you doing this? And I said, I really didn't have a good answer, but I did enjoy it. And actually, one of my one of the persons I met there, her name is Bonnie Crombie, and I can say her name because she is now the Mississauga mayor, city of Mississauga, second largest city in Canada. I don't know, but she is. Uh, and I remember hearing about this Bonnie Crombie, the mayor. I thought, is that the Bonnie Crombie I knew? And I looked her up, uh, and uh, yeah, that's her. And she was a superb person to work with when I did my MBA. She was in my project group, and so they have a they have a great mayor replacing Hazel McCallion, who was. A famously, uh, uh, um, I guess, enduring mayor who was there till the age of 94. So I think she might have the record for the longest serving politician in the world. She started when she was 40 or something. Hazel McCallion. She replaced Hazel McCallion. That's, those are tough shoes to fill. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like Mississauga is doing pretty well for itself as far as mayors go. <laughs> I digressed a bit there, but, you know, every experience has these surprises, right? So even though I maybe shouldn't have been doing an MBA, you know, I met some incredible people, right? Yeah. And then doing the PhD was a bit of a, maybe that was a, that was a tough one. Um, I was at a stage where I I always wanted to get a doctorate in something. Now, my daughter, who's in med school right now, has made it very clear that, me getting a PhD doesn't mean I'm a real doctor, you know, <laughs> but I am a doctorate, I guess. And, uh, and, uh, I, I did, I really enjoyed that experience. That was probably my favorite degree. Uh, you, uh, my topic was <clears throat> when you do a PhD, you can explore any topic you want. So I chose the topic of, um, funding, funding public schools. So how they fund them and how they can, um, be more efficient, save some money, um, by cooperating more between school boards. So it was sort of, it was a pretty hot topic at the time and uh, it's an important topic and uh, it's sort of the finance side of education, but uh, um, it was, I enjoyed doing that thesis, got a lot out of it and uh, I got my doctorate. Uh, even if my daughter doesn't think I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you still have some successes though. I mean, it's still, it's still a big accomplishment. You're not operating on anybody, but Hey, you did you did something awesome. What was it in particular that you studied in your doctorate program? So we studied all the courses like uh, sociology, uh, education administration. Um, I did probably my favorite course was negotiations. In education, there's a lot of labor negotiations that goes on between unions, teachers' unions, and provinces or whatever. So, um, and then I mentioned my thesis, which is in the area of <clears throat> finance, school board finance, and how sports can share resources. I can give you one example if you have. 
a Catholic school board and a public school board in the same geographic area, and maybe even a French Catholic, French English, uh, English Catholic, English public, whatever, the four combinations all overlapping, it sort of makes sense to maybe share transportation systems, like not so you don't have four buses going down the same road, you can have one bus picking up kids from the different systems. It's more efficient that way. So if you can get the boards to agree on cooperating in, in such ways, they can save millions of dollars. And, uh, and so that was sort of the topic of my uh, thesis. That is really interesting. That's really cool. Hey, future Alex here, just interjecting to mention that My Wax Museum has an Instagram page with a ton of bonus content. You'll also want to make sure you're following us over there on Instagram at My Wax Museum because we've got some really cool stuff coming up in the new year. So it's at My Wax Museum on Instagram. Super easy. See you over there. Now, back to the show. So then moving ahead now, as we get into your present, what uh, what have been the things that you have worked on and accomplished between getting your doctorate and now? Uh, probably the primary thing was uh, teaching, getting into teaching. It was a huge move for me. It was, it was definitely a move towards my uh, genuine self. Um, and uh, so I taught, I started by teaching math, but I pretty quickly got into teaching economics in a couple of the uh, independent schools here in, in the Toronto area. So um, teaching was uh, a saving grace for me because it's, it was the first job that I really felt like I was um, sort of hitting my stride and doing what I was meant to do. And uh didn't come naturally necessarily. My first few years, I, I, I struggled with sort of what kind of teaching I was going to be, how to motivate kids, how to, how to deal with adolescence. Um, but uh, eventually, I really uh, learned from other great teachers and from the kids. And, uh, and my wife is also a teacher. So just through all that, I, I learned to, I got much more comfortable with the role. And um, um, uh, it just sort of hit, started hitting my stride. Teaching economics was fantastic because kids would, uh, that would often be an elective. They weren't forced to take it. And uh, we could talk about current events, we talk about money, investing, uh, corporations, um, social, uh, social um, consciousness uh, things, uh, social issues, uh, world issues. And um, so that was probably the best subject for me to teach. And uh, I guess, Alex, one other thing I really got into was <clears throat> coaching cross-country running. Uh, I was uh, I was a shameless promoter in my school. Uh, I, I worked with uh, one other coach, Wendy Jones, and she and I uh, were, took about 10 years, but we built up a program in our, in our fairly small school. We only had 500 kids in a high school. And we built up the program uh, one person at a time, one runner at a time. And we um, sort of got a culture of running going. We got a motto. Our motto was um, training takes discipline and racing takes courage. And just a motto like that. And then we got a, uh, a better jersey with the, uh, we even have a little Nike uh, sponsorship swoosh on it. Um, we had, um, we would, we would um, just promote it through um, the captains who were so enthusiastic, we would reach out to the grade nines coming in and say, you know, you know, what kind of sports do you want to do? We never really expected anybody to just run because running's pretty tough, right? It's not necessarily as glorious as playing basketball or, or uh, hockey or something, but we often would reach out to kids saying, you know, do you want to try to be a dual sport athlete? Do you want to do a bit of running and I can talk to your coach and 
you can still be on that other team. So the dual sport thing was a huge thing for us. And anyway, we eventually, uh, over the years, um, build up certain ideas. One idea you might like and your readers might like is this idea of the fourth runner. So in cross country, it's not really an individual sport. You're running as a team and you cannot score points, uh, say in midget boys or something, unless you have four midget boys cross the finish line from your school. So four grade nine boys, if you had the first three grade nine boys that did amazingly, it didn't matter. You had to have a fourth runner to count any points as a school. And if you had fifth, sixth, seventh runner, great, but it's the top four who counted for points. So we would, we instilled the idea that we should be admiring and revering the fourth runner, that they are the linchpin for the team. And it's not the first runner, not the second, not those top three faster runners. It's that slower runner who's out there fighting for probably twice as long as the other runners, fighting to cross the finish line. And again, I'm actually emotional here because I think of so many runners who aren't as talented, but they, they work just as hard. And think of a sport. I can't think of another sport where the these um, the lesser talented people get more more game time. That's the only sport I can think of. They're out there for twice as long. But this sport is painful. It's it's very tough for kids, and uh, it's not glorious. So we would we would uh, admire the fourth runner. And then what happened is you had these fifth and sixth and seventh runners who tried their very best to become the fourth runner. It's not to take anything away from the first three runners. They're they're incredible too, and they're more talented. But that the idea of, and I think any business organization or any organization out there could steal from that theme. That you know you you have to let people shine. Not your top people. They're going to shine anyway. Let some of your your mediocre, less talented people who don't you don't necessarily hear from. Let them play a prominent role and feel valued in your organization. I like that. I like that a lot, that idea of the fourth runner and, and allowing people to, to feel valued and, and making people part of that team. Now, um, you talk about running as being a team sport. It, you know, <laughs> there, there's more than just you involved in cross-country running. That's interesting. Moving on now, as we look at your present, we've kind of talked a little bit about this idea of your genuine self. And we've, you and I have talked about that before with your book and how, when, how you've wanted to write this book, you wrote this book, and then you kind of let it slide for a little bit. But then recently, you've actually gone and published it and put it out there. So give, give me kind of the story behind that a little bit. Yeah, so I tried to publish a book, Alex, about 11 years ago. It was called Age Decoded. It's the same book that I published this year, but um, it was it was uh, rejected by most by all publishers, um, and that's fairly uh, expected. It's very difficult to crack into sci-fi, uh, especially as a first-time author. And back then, uh, genetic engineering and the CRISPR technology and whatnot was just on the radar screen, but really not top of mind with people as it is now. So, in my in in a sense, I think it was serendipity that. Um, my book, which I did work very hard on back then, was not uh, published because right now, publishing in now is is a much better time. It's a very, very hot topic. Um, and the other thing is um, uh, this second time around, uh, I had, uh, I've updated the book. I've published it. I used self-publishing as my mechanism. I, I didn't even reach out to publishers this time because I've read a lot about self-publishing. 
And um, it's a much, much more viable uh, alternative these days for any author out there. Don't be afraid to, to write something and publish it. Get it out there. If, if It may be picked up by a publisher, too, once you get it out there, too. You never know, right? So it's another way of advertising yourself. Uh, so uh, it was serendipity, I think, that my book came out now and that self-published. Um, it, uh, it was, um, you know, it's, it was... It was being patient, I think, sometimes and failing can be a good thing. And I, I do think in this case, it was the best thing that it was not accepted 11 years ago. Yeah, I really liked that lesson when you shared it on on Broken Bulbs. I, I think that idea of finding the right timing and being patient about that is really valuable. Now, the, the book, HD Coded, which I'll link in the show notes for anybody who would like to go and check it out. Uh, is about genetic engineering, as you mentioned. Fill me in, because we've we've like covered every topic under the sun. You've gotten an MBA, you did a doctorate in education, you've worked with schools, you've been a teacher, you've done running. What is it about genetic engineering that got you interested in it? Well, I'm a competitive triathloner, so, <clears throat> and I've been doing that for about ten years. So I was interested in the idea of aging and performance. So I started writing the book thinking about, you know, as you get older, what happens and how do you uh, still try to perform? Now, when I compete right now, it's in the age group category. So it's very fair. Like I, I'm in the 60 to 65 year old age. group. I don't have to compete against the young bucks or the professionals. But the 60, 65 people, even within that category, people would, your viewers would, or listeners would be surprised to learn that a 64 year old knows that they are a disadvantage to a 61 year old. Like they can feel that three years. They actually, they're so fine tuned that they, uh, they can feel it. And in that three years, their aerobic capacity or something is probably going to drop off about one or 2%. And they can feel that. That's like 20 seconds in a 10K run. They can feel that. So it's, um, I, I was interested in this whole idea of aging, trying to, um, to get the best you can out of your situation and also to compete at the highest level, no matter what age. And then um, I, as I read about aging, uh, I, I also came across this idea of uh, genetic engineering and the research going on right now in genetic engineering um, is some of it does relate to the aging. Like uh, genetic engineering will definitely solve a lot of problems, uh, disorders, such as cystic fibrosis, Alzheimer's disease, sickle cell anemia, HIV. They're, 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 uh, they are they are progressing very strongly on all these fronts. Huntington's is another one. Um, these diseases are all genetically based and some of them will, they will find solutions to them. In fact, I know they've already treated somebody for sickle cell using genetic. And what they do is uh, a year and a half ago in the United States, they, they treated a patient um, that the sickle cell is very prevalent in the black population. And that, that lady, they treated her, her uh, cells, her blood, just the blood, and so they would extract parts of her blood, regenerate, uh, genetically modify her blood, and then reimplant it. And uh, evidently, she's healthy, and they they cured her sickle cell. So that's just an example. This is gonna there's gonna be a tsunami of these sort of positive effects. But just to get back to the point, um, aging is seen as a disease by many people. I, I know a lot of your listeners might think, well, it's a natural process, but aging, a lot of people think it as a disorder. I don't necessarily think of it that way, but the research is going on thinking of it and it's associated with so many other things. So 
there is a lot of genetic research going on in the United States, Europe, and Japan. Um, I could just give you one example, Shinya Yamanaka from Kyoto University in Japan. He's figured out how to um, uh, inject cells from uh, uh, sperm and egg, like early, early age cells, or sorry, I think it's um, embryos, uh, into older cells. And those genes that come from the, the, the embryo cells into older adult cells and those adult cells reverse age. So the, even reverse aging is being explored by um, David Sinclair from um, uh, Harvard University is, uh, uh, is also looking at reverse aging, not just aging, reverse aging. So not just stopping aging. So there's a lot going on in that area. And so for me to write a book on this about aging, I needed to bring in genetic engineering. So my book, what they do is they use genetic engineering to finally stop aging in about 50 years time. And then I'm going out another 150 years, they reverse aging. And I want to, I want the readers to feel and imagine what that would be like. And it's not a bowl of cherries. It's definitely not a bowl of cherries. I'm not necessarily in favor of this, um, but a lot, it's a very alluring thing. And most of the people in my book sign up for it. That's really cool. Uh, looking, looking now towards your future, I'm curious, would you, uh, would you take any sort of genetic engineering to de-age yourself or stop aging? Is that something that you would do? Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I usually <laughs> ask the host, can you answer first while I think about that? Would I you would. go for, I mean, you're, you're so young, right? Uh, if you could, would you lock into a certain age? Um, I think I would. What age would you go for? Uh, Probably 30. I feel like I could use a few more years. I'm with you, actually, about, I, li I liked um, 29, 30. I think that was the optimal, you know, for obviously for things like traveling, it's you're at your peak, right? But right. Uh, in my book, there's a character um, now at the point where they can only lock in. He's 78 and he locks in. Um, he's a very thoughtful person and he, he, it's not an easy decision for him. He actually thinks for a long time about not doing it and just, He's, he's not in good health, so he's pretty close to dying. He knows it, but he locks in. And uh, and then 150 years later, he has to decide whether to reverse, and he doesn't. He does not reverse. And I don't want to give away too much, but um, he's, a, he's a very Buddhist, very mindful person, and he, um, he didn't like the implications of locking in, and he therefore decides not to reverse. Um, his daughter, who's only 25, wants him to reverse and she even jokes with him and says uh not, not his daughter sorry his granddaughter uh says to him if you reverse in 50 years 55 years we'll be the same age wouldn't that be trippy <laughs> but th that doesn't entice him because he uh he's thought about a lot of the other ramifications um okay well everybody's gonna have to go and read your book then age decoded um, I'll put links to it down in the show notes so people can check it out. That's really enticing. It sounds like it's, it's a good mix of philosophy as well as just like an interesting subject. It is an interesting subject. It, it, it was so much fun uh, writing this. And uh, I think it's a, a thoughtful read for people. My characters all have a different view of things, um, but um, they're all humans, right? And of genetic engineering, uh, Alex, what it really is, uh, so far in history, mankind or humankind, we've done a pretty good job nurturing each other. 
we've um, by nurture I mean you know social systems, medical, medicine, technology, education. We we have we we have our flaws and issues, but generally mankind and humans have progressed upwards with life expectancy and whatnot. Uh, no, there's no doubt about that. But that's nurture. But with genetic engineering, this is crossing into a whole other territory that this is going to be nature or human nature not human nurture we're literally going to be changing humans where this is a completely different thing i don't know if you ever saw that movie trading places with dan Aykroyd and eddie murphy it's a must see it's a very funny movie but it's all about nature versus nurture and what's more important well we are going to be going into the era of changing human nature literally changing humans in there because once you change their genes you change their code and you change their all any possible traits physical or mental are possible here that's really cool yeah i i'm really curious to to get into the book as well as to just see where where things go in in the real world as well um so as we as we move away from that then looking out into the rest of your future you do triathlons what else do you have planned? What else do you have going on? Well, I do want to try to get back into the world championship for the triathlon. I failed in my last time. We, we talked about that on a previous show. So I've got a bit of a burr in my saddle uh, on that one. <laughs> but um, so I, that's going to take time because with COVID, we haven't been able to compete. But I, I'd like to get back into that. And my wife and I would definitely like to do some travel once things open up. Uh, we're looking at maybe Italy or and Croatia and maybe Scotland. So travel would be, would be awesome to start exploring some other uh, places. And I am going to write a second book. So I'm um, exploring some themes there, um, sort of playing in my playing, playing with the idea in my mind of uh, the idea would be convergence. So there's been a lot written about robots becoming more human-like, but with genetic engineering, what's going to happen is humans are going to become more robotic-like. So maybe if I called it, maybe they're going to meet in the middle and convergence. You won't be able to tell any of them apart. Um, something like that. Yeah, so. I like it. I I like how uh, how great a breadth of interests you have uh, because I'm I'm kind of the same way. Like everything fascinates me. I'm curious about everything, and so and so I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, and I have I have one last question for you, sure. Um, which is at the end of your life, if you know, if you do have an end of your life, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if we don't figure these things out, at the end of your life, when you're looking back on everything you've accomplished, you've done triathlons, you've done so much schooling and taught people and shared these passions with people through your books and and everything else that you create when you're looking back at it all, what do you think are going to be the things you'll be most proud of and satisfied with? Things that are there when you're gone. So for example, our lovely daughter, Stephanie, we have one daughter and we're so proud of her and she'll be living on. Actually, she might in, be in that generation that lives on for several hundred years. Who knows? So that's, uh, that's very precious. Um, I do some art and the nice thing about art is uh, whatever you produce is probably going to be permanent in a physical form or even a digital form. So sharing that with people is, is great because it lives on past you. And also, obviously, writing is something like that. So 
something like triathlon is probably not as important because that's just more of a personal fulfillment thing and nobody's going to care how he did like <laughs> 20 years from now and it doesn't really live on i don't yeah. think uh, but these other things like the artistic pursuits and also our, my child uh, that that lives on and that's that's your that's something you can be proud on proud of i like that proud of the things that live on that's great and of course with that i just want to say Thank you very much for sharing your life and for joining me. Yeah, it's been an awesome experience, and and uh, you have a you have a great show here, and uh, I'm humbled and, and honored to be uh, to be a part of it. Thank you very much, very much, Alex. And thank you for listening, not just to the show, which we certainly do appreciate, but more so to the people around you, the people from your everyday life that you just happen to know. Make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Mecco.